One of the natural aspects of reading the Gospels as reportage is the practice of harmonizing narratives that may, at first and casual glance, seem so different that they are hard to reconcile. We do such harmonization readily enough in ordinary life almost without thinking about it. Two friends give very different reports of the doings at a conference, say, and we infer that they probably attended different sessions. Or one neighbor reports a local grocery store to be sorely wanting in fresh produce, while another happily reports a satisfactory shopping trip to the same market. And we also do such harmonization in history when we are fortunate enough to have multiple accounts of the same events. Of course, particular suggestions for harmonizing the narratives may be plausible or implausible, but when we have other reasons to believe that we are dealing with ordinary reportage, it is as important a part of good methodology to accept the plausible harmonizations as it is to reject the strained and implausible ones. The battle over the admissibility of harmonization, whether it is something we are entitled to do at all, or whether it is somehow illegitimate to do with scripture, what we normally do in everyday life, has been fought in New Testament scholarship for several centuries. Curiously, it, some contemporary scholars are now declaring that it is or should be a dead issue because back in the 1830s, the skeptical German scholar David Friedrich Strauss wrote what they take to be a devastating critique of the method, showing that instead we should use critical methods to dissolve gospel narratives into a jumble of legends, myths, and spontaneous inventions. Here at the Library of Historical Apologetics, we are always interested to see older works addressed, including the older skeptical works, and we're glad to bring out some of the writings of Strauss's contemporaries who engaged with his arguments, sometimes with devastating effect. One of those contemporaries was William Lindsay Alexander, and this is a reading from the fifth chapter of his book Christ and Christianity, published in 1854, a chapter wholly devoted to Strauss's attack on the Gospels. There is another thing in Dr. Strauss's hypothesis utterly irreconcilable with that state of primitive credulousness in which it is essential to his whole theory of a mythic origin for the Gospels that we should believe the early Christians to have existed. It is the exceedingly artificial and elaborate character which, by his own showing, belongs to those so-called myths. When we peruse the analysis he gives of the different Gospel narratives, we cannot but wonder at the exceeding patience and ingenuity which must have presided over their formation. Let us take, by way of illustration, the first that occurs in his book, The Annunciation and Birth of the Baptist. According to Strauss, this was got up in the following way. An individual had in his mind a compound image blended from scattered traits respecting the late birth of distinguished individuals as recorded in the Old Testament. He thought of Isaac, whose parents were advanced in their days when they were promised a son, and this suggested that John's parents should be the same. He remembered how doubtingly Abraham asked when God promised him a seed which should inherit Canaan, how shall I know that I shall inherit it? And hence he made Zacharias ask, whereby shall I know this? He called to mind that the name of Aaron's wife was, according to the Septuagint, Elizabeth, and this suggested a name for John's mother. Then he bethought him of Samson's birth being announced by an angel, and accordingly he provided an angel to announce that of John also. He glanced at popular Jewish notions regarding angels visiting the priests in the temple, and thence obtained a locality for the angelic apparition to Zacharias. 
he got back next to Samson and from his history supplied the instructions which the angel gives respecting John's Nazaritic education as well as the blessings which it was predicted that John's birth would confer upon his country. He next went to the history of Samuel and borrowed thence the idea of the lyric effusion uttered by Zacharias on the occasion of his son's circumcision. He then fixed upon a significant name for the prophet, calling him John after the president of Israel and Isaac. The command to Isaiah to write the name of his son Maher Shalal Hashbaz upon a tablet recalled to him the necessity of providing Zacharias also with something of the sort, and as for the dumbness of the priest, it was suggested by the fact that the Hebrews believed that any man who saw a divine vision usually lost for a time one of his senses. So, exclaims Dr. Strauss after a long enumeration of all these particulars, we stand here upon purely mythical poetical ground. Indeed. Then must the people of that mythical poetical age have been deeply versed in all those artifices of composition by which, in these later times, men of defective powers of fancy continued to construct stories by picking and stealing odds and ends of adventure from those who have written before them. No hero of the scissors and paste school ever went more unscrupulously to work than did this unknown composer of the story of John's birth. And, after all, he made it look so natural and so apparently original that it required a German philosopher of the 19th century to find out for the first time that it was a mere piece of mosaic from bits of the antique, a mere thing of shreds and patches. I blush for the degeneracy of the age. The most practice of booksellers' hacks nowadays is far, very far behind this skillful literary man of a mythical poetic age. I'm Tim McGrew, and this has been a reading from the Library of Historical Apologetics.